Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Two Tongues Podcast coming at you. Chris, another solo episode today. I promised you a little uh, Arthur Eddington. Let's see. little book here. Uh, Arthur Stanley Eddington. So when I mentioned it, the last of the, the end of the last episode, I was basically telling you that um, it was getting back a little bit into some of the stuff that I like to talk about. In the beginning, maybe a year or two ago, we did a lot of stuff where we talked about philosophy of mind, and we talked about, um, we talked about, if you remember, David Chalmers and Peter Shirsted Hughes and um, uh, Philip Goff and a lot of people that were panpsychist, illusionist type folks that question the accepted scientific narrative, which is a physicalist, materialist world. Uh, most people in the West have bought that wholesale, and people forget that there has been and continues to be resistance to the idea that science offers a complete explanation of reality, especially when it comes to understanding the human mind, what the word mind even means, what the word consciousness or sentience even means. And David Chalmers has told us uh, famously that consciousness does not supervene on the physical it can't be explained from the physical laws that govern the physical world. You know, uh, if you know uh, the equations that govern relativity, the equations that govern quantum physics, um, if you know all of this, you're not able to use that information to arrive at the existence of consciousness. There simply is no explanation in the physical world. And this is a deep, deep problem. It goes back to Galileo, it goes back to Descartes, to this ideal of, of dualism, mind and body, right? Or spirit and body, mind and matter, that sort of a thing. So we can talk about them separately, but we can't talk about them together. And I always found that interesting, because to me it's always seemed like it leaves a door open for religious experience as authentic. Um, if the explanation is that Science can't explain it because it's not in the realm of, of, of what science can explain. Now, we're so, we're so apt to imagine that science can explain everything because it's done such great things. It's allowed us to do such great things. It's making our lives and the world better in countless ways. It's the most powerful thing that we've ever you know, been able to, to develop. And so, so it becomes God, right? It becomes something that's unquestioned. But there are people, and even in the, you know, going back to the very beginning of, of modern science, that challenge that. And what we've done in the modern culture is we've, we've said, okay, the people who challenge that, 
the reason they're challenging that is for some religious reason. And so we can dismiss you altogether because religion is not rational. It's not a part of science. It's not a part of the world that we can measure. It's fantasy. It's make-believe. Something that makes us feel better about dying. You know, that sort of thing. It's not real. And so we can dismiss it. But when we dismiss it, we dismiss half of our experience. Our experience is physical. It is material. We eat food. You know, we have sex. We breathe. We taste. We run. You know, we, we sleep. All of these things are physical. What we touch and interact with. But there's a whole other side of that. It's our experience of those physical things. The way it feels. The way it smells. The colors. The form. Our memories. These are all things that are not physical. How about, how about the things that we desire? The things that we're interested in? Where does that come from? What does that mean? It's not physical. What makes me interested in philosophy and interested in consciousness? What is that thing? It's not physical, is it? So all of the things that matter most to us in our existence aren't physical. And so if, if we are determined that physical explanations are all we need and are all we want, then we're basically giving up understanding the other half of our reality. And the person that I want to talk about today, uh, Arthur Eddington, was a scientist. And not only was he a scientist, he was a very important astrophysicist, one of the pioneers of, of the field, decorated in ways that we'll talk about here in a minute, but decorated in ways that show he was a stunning intellect and a career scientist. He was also a religious man. And I always find that combination to be interesting. Very empirically minded, but also open to mystical realities, like that sort of combination. And we've talked about lots of those people. Swedenborg and um, uh, Davy and uh, you know, lots of the people, Plato for that matter, lots of the people that we talk about are like this. So let me open up this book that we're going to talk about is called Science and the Unseen World. So I'll let that intrigue you for a minute. But I want to tell you a little bit about Arthur Eddington. I didn't know much about Arthur Eddington, but I saw this book recommended. And it's not actually a book at all, but a lecture that he did in 1929. Part of a lecture series called the Swarthmore Lectures. And I'll talk, talk a little bit about that as well. But Eddington was born in the late 1800s, 1882. He died just before the Second World War ended in 1944. Uh, he was an astronomer by trade, a physicist, a mathematician. He's famous for having predicted how stars work. So he spent a lot of time, like I said, a pioneer of astrophysics. He spent a lot of time observing the stars. And he, he basically predicted nuclear fusion as the mechanism of stars. Like that's how they burn. Before that was ever proven, he was one of the people who predicted it. He was also an early supporter of Albert Einstein and a proponent of his theory of relativity in the early days when it wasn't well understood. I mean, as if it is today, I don't know. Um, it wasn't well understood and it wasn't generally accepted. He was a supporter in the early days. He bought into that immediately. And he was the director of the University of Cambridge Observatory, 
um, again, a pioneer of astrophysics. He was also a fellow of the Royal Society of England. So as an American, I don't know if you have any idea what, what the Royal Society is. I bumped into it when I was a kid. I was doing a research project in school on uh, Charles Darwin's grandfather, a guy named Erasmus Darwin. And I noticed that after his name, it said Erasmus Darwin, F-R-S. It's like, what the hell does that mean? Well, you look it up and you're going to find it's a fellow of the Royal Society. So the Royal Society is a premier um, um, group of academics, scientists, that are... Um, I'm trying to think of the word here, again, as, a, as an American that doesn't immediately come to me. Um, they essentially funded and, uh, and under the auspices of the crown. So you can imagine a group of scientists who work together uh, under the authority and funding of the, um, of the monarch. And lots of famous people, in fact, the most famous scientists and thinkers that you can imagine belong to the Royal Society. Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, and the list goes on and on. But here's what's interesting about Eddington. With all those credentials that I just mentioned, he was also a devout Quaker. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Quakers. This is a Protestant religion that was an offshoot of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Um, so this is the, uh, the Protestant's Protestant, for lack of a better phrase. For some reason, I always associated the Quakers with the Amish. Maybe that's just because of the Quaker oat box. I don't know. But, um, but they came, I mean, I think um, Penn, the guy that uh, founded Pennsylvania here, was a Quaker. So they have deep roots in the United States as well. Uh, but he was a devout Quaker, and of course, that makes him a religious man. In fact, the lecture that we're going to read today was delivered to what's called the Society of Friends, which is a Quaker group. That's what they called themselves, the Society of Friends. And I'm fairly unfamiliar with the Quakers, really. But a quick wiki reveals the religion to be staunchly anti-violent and anti-dogmatic, allowing for belief and practice unencumbered by religious, religious creed. They don't want your spiritual path, your spiritual seeking to be held back by some kind of staunch rules like a religious creed. So you have a little bit more freedom, and so it's, it sounds to me a little bit more liberal. And you can see with the, you know, the nonviolent and and so forth, it kind of falls into that category. Something, something sort of um, sort of liberal, especially for a church. Um, and they're generally united by a belief in each human's ability to experience what they call the light of God within, but also in other people. And there's also some talk about. Um, um, the priesthood of of the believers as a, as a part of their um, their their beliefs. So the idea is you don't need priests, um, but it's the priesthood of believers. And so what that does is it turns human beings into um, we're all high priests. You know we all, we all have that kind of authority. We also experience the light of God within us. So God is to be to be known to be encountered within ourselves. Which reminds me of something Jesus said when he said the kingdom of God is within you. Right, so something like that, but also the light of God being in others. So you have this idea of something like the spirit, the force of life, um, uh, your, your your consciousness as something akin to God itself. And I think this unique combination of a keen scientific mind and a borderline mystical religious upbringing provides a balanced and nuanced perspective on the nature of man and the place of the spirit in the pursuit of worldly knowledge. 
So Eddington was a scientist. He was a seeker. Somebody who wanted to understand, who wanted to seek knowledge. But he wasn't satisfied doing that strictly in a scientific realm. Because he also believed that there was a spiritual component to our lives. And there was much to be learned there. Much to be discovered there. So that brings me to the beginning here. I'm going to call this first section Physical Theory and Explanation. And Eddington begins like this. He says, We have busied ourselves with the process by which the electric particles widely diffused in primeval chaos have come together to build the complexity of a human being. We cannot but acknowledge that a human being involves also something incommensurable, consciousness. It is a constituent of reality, which our survey of the material world leaves on one side. Hence arises the problem of the dualism of spirit and matter. On the one side, there is consciousness stirring with activity of thought and sensation. On the other side, a maelstrom of scurrying atoms and electric charges. Incommensurable as they are, there is some kind of overlap or contact between them. All right, so this is how we open up. We're really opening up this conversation of dualism. So he's admitting that there's some sort of uh, interaction or, or link between the physical and the mental, or the physical and the spiritual. But what that is is hard to say. And there's a mystery here. He's, he's talking about how all of these particles in the primeval chaos, like when the, when the cosmos was just forming and it was nothing but heat and chaos and, and, and all, that's, all the mystery that we don't really understand about the Big Bang, all that stuff's going on. And eventually that organizes and becomes a human being. And that's all physical. It's all governed by the physical laws. And yet, one of the consequences here is the existence of consciousness. We are conscious. And that is not governed by physics. And it's not explained by physics. So what in the hell is going on? And he says, hence arises the problem of dualism, of spirit and matter. He goes on, he says, If today you asked a physicist, what is the electron? The answer will not be anything concrete. He will point instead to a number of symbols and a set of mathematical equations which they satisfy. What do the symbols stand for? The mysterious reply is given that physics has no means of probing beneath the symbolism. To understand the physical world, it is necessary to know the equations which the symbols obey, but not the nature of that which is symbolized. So have you ever thought about it like that? Now, I've mentioned this before a few times, but it's been said that science tells us what something does, not what it is. Right, So when, you, when they say, what is an electron? What science says is, it's something that dot, dot, dot. But the something part is left entirely open. It's something that interacts with other electrons. It's something that has spin and charge. That's all what it does. But what is it? What is the something that does that? You can call that an electron. You can give it a symbol. You can, you can, you can make an equation out of it. 
But what is it? What does the symbol stand for? What is the nature of that which is being symbolized? Those are um, excellent questions. Questions that we forget to ask nowadays. He says, we have traveled far from the standpoint which identifies the real with the concrete. So he's alluding to quantum mechanics. And, and he existed, he lived in the early days of quantum mechanics. When he brings up the electron, you remember, that, that has to do with the double slit experiment, the particle wave duality. When we realize that for the first time, matter isn't something solid and concrete with, with a precise position and momentum. Now it's just a field of potential or probability. That's, that's what quantum mechanics told us, revealed that there is nothing concrete about what we think of as real. So we've traveled far from the standpoint where we identify what's real with what's concrete. So we have to think a little bit more flexibly. He says, we all share the strange delusion that matter is easily comprehensible whereas the human spirit is unfathomable. But consider how our acquaintance with matter is attained. Some influence emanating from it plays on the extremities of a nerve, starting a series of physical and chemical changes propagated along the nerve to a brain cell. There, a mystery happens, and an image or sensation arises in the mind which cannot purport to resemble the stimulus which excites it. So here he's just talking about how do we know the physical world? We have some excitation, and that gets translated down our nerves into our brain and becomes some image or some experience. And he says that there's a mystery that happens before this image or sensation arises. We have this, we have this experience of something out there that gets translated into some internal experience that we can then have. What is the mystery that happens that takes the signal from out there and makes it some reality that we see? So the point is that the cascade of signal from out there is not the reality being signaled. It's merely a symbol or a representation. So perception is like that. It's not, there's no way for us to say that our perception is identical to what it's perceiving. Our perception is different from what's being perceived. It's a signal that's been translated. So there's even less certainty, like less certainty to what's concrete because quantum mechanics has gotten rid of that. Now what's certain about our experience? We can't exactly say because we're translating it. We're translating from some symbolic abstraction, some representation of the world is what we experience and not what's really there. He says, it is, as a, it is an astonishing feat of deciphering that we should have been able to infer an orderly scheme of, of natural knowledge from such indirect communication. The mind as a central receiving station reads the incoming nerve signals, but a broadcasting station is not like its call signal. Right? If the signal is coming from a broadcast station and all I'm getting is the signal, how do I know from the signal what the broadcast station is? I only know what the signal is. And he says it's an it's a astonishing feat of deciphering that we can take such indirect communication 
right? I want to know this, the, the receiving station. That's what I want to know. What's out there? And my means to finding that out is the signal that it's sending out. That's indirect communication. He said it's a miracle that we know that there's any reality out there at all or that we think we know anything real about it. He says physics insists that its methods do not penetrate behind the symbolism. Surely then, that mental and spiritual nature of ourselves, known by an intimate contact, supplies just that interpretation of the symbols which science is admittedly unable to give. Mind is the first and most direct thing in experience. All else is remote inference. Right? I have to infer from the signal what's out there. I don't have to infer from my, from my consciousness that I'm conscious. I directly experience that. So that is the thing I should be most certain of. That is the thing I actually know. Everything external the physical world around me, the thing that science is concerned about, is inference. He says, space and time and matter is probed by every device of physical science. And at bottom we reach symbols. Nonetheless, it remains a real world if there is a background to the symbols. It is to this background that our own consciousness belongs. So what does he mean here? So if science can tell us nothing about the physical world apart from the symbols that it can kind of reduce it to, we can't really say those symbols are real in any way. Unless the background, right, the something real on which that those symbols rest, if there's a background that allows those symbols to exist, then there's something real about them. There is something real there. And he says that our consciousness belongs to that background. I can't help but think about Jungian ideas of the unconscious here when he says the background. And that brings us to the next section, which is called the problem of experience. Eddington says, The conflict of the scientific and the religious outlook is the problem presented by experience. Picture first, consciousness is a bundle of sense impressions and nothing more. Picture again consciousness, this time, as we intimately know it. Responsible, aspiring, yearning, doubting. What is it all about? The answer must be broader, embracing but not limited to the scientific answer. So here he just makes a simple point. You can imagine consciousness as the science, scientist does, as a bundle of sense impressions and nothing more. But you can also imagine it how we really experience it, as full, full of you know, emotions and motivations. How is it that sense impressions are tied to motivations and, and emotions? So part of the explanation is going to be scientific, but part of it is going to be beyond the scientific. There's more to it. He says, the desire for truth, a reaching out to something beyond, a response to beauty and nature and art, are these as much a part of our being as our sensitivity to sense impressions? 
See, there's more to it than the sense impressions that science and that the physical sciences can explain. Aren't those real also? Our desire for truth, for reaching out to something beyond, a response to beauty? Yes, of course. You can't deny those. To deny those is to, die, to, to deny your own reality or a big chunk of it. He says, study of the scientific world cannot prescribe something which is excluded from the scientific world. For the rest, we must turn to the unseen world. So this idea of the unseen world, where we get the title from here, this is an allusion to what he called the background behind the symbols. You know, the ones and zeros behind the matrix. What's really there? The thing that's really real that allows this semi-illusory physical world to exist that we experience. We know it's semi-illusory. Just ask Niels Bohr. Just ask, ask Albert Einstein. Ask the quantum physicists. He says, some would put, put the question in the form, is the unseen world reality? There is less danger of misunderstanding if we put the question in the form, are we facing the hard facts of experience? So, This is a different way of looking at it, but he wants you to say, not to ask the question, is the unseen world real? Because we can go down rabbit holes there about what does real mean, and we're going to do that today. He said, instead, ask the question, are we facing hard facts of experience? Surely we are. He says, those who would wish to take cognizance of nothing but the measurements of the scientific world are shirking one of the most immediate facts of experience. Namely, that consciousness is not wholly, nor even primarily, a device for receiving sense impressions. So as a scientist, if you explain consciousness by, you know, a a mechanism for receiving sense impressions, data from the world out there that helps you to navigate the world and to survive, if that's why it was evolved, if that's why we developed it, if that's its purpose, why does it also give us things like values, judgments, the experience of love and awe and all of these other things. What purpose does that serve? And he says, I, can't, I cannot do better than to quote J.S. Hoyland. So this is Hoyland's quote. There is an hour of the Indian night, a little before the first glimmer of dawn, when as yet there is no sound from awakening birds. But the whole world seems to be intent, alive, listening, eager. At such a moment, the veil between the things that are seen and the things unseen becomes so thin as to interpose scarcely any barrier at all between the eternal beauty and the soul which would comprehend them. Buddy. Then Eddington says... Here is an experience which the observer in scientific theory knows nothing of. We do not ask whether philosophy can justify such an outlook. Rather, our system of philosophy is itself on trial. It must stand or fall as it is broad enough to find room for this experience. Our environment may and should mean something towards us which is not to be measured with the tools of the physicist or described by the metrical symbols of the mathematician. So our experiences mean something. Meaning and value are not 
physical. They're not geometrical. They're not mathematical. They're not material. And yet, they can't, they can't be explained by science, and yet they are what's most important to us. The world can be whatever it wants to be. What it means is what matters to us. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the, irre- start over, the irrelevancy of natural law to consciousness. And this reminds me of David Chalmers, who I mentioned in the beginning. Remember, David, David Chalmers said consciousness is unusual in the world because it, it's something that doesn't supervene on the physical. It cannot be explained or deduced from the laws of physics. And this section, again, the irrelevancy of natural law to consciousness. So we're talking sort of along those same lines. And it goes like this. Materialism reduces everything to operation of natural law, which are ultimately reducible to mathematical equations. One of the most important questions that we have to face is whether the unseen world is governed by a like scheme of law. Natural law is not applicable to the unseen world behind the symbols because it is unadapted to anything except symbols. You cannot apply such a scheme to the parts of our personality which are not measurable by symbols any more than you can extract the square root of a sonnet. There is a kind of unity between the material and the spiritual worlds, between the symbols and their background. But it is not the scheme of natural law which will provide the cement. Again, I couldn't put it any better. Consciousness, our experience, does not supervene on the physical. And Eddington offers this. He says, The essential difference in the realm of spirit and mind seems to hang around the word ought. So I don't know if what comes to your mind there, but um, there's a philosopher, um, David Hume, I believe, uh, who has a famous um, statement that you can't derive an ought from an is. And I think this is the point that Eddington is making. The unseen world, the spiritual component to our experience, to our reality, seems to hang around or hinge on the word ought. And David Hume tells us there's nothing about how the world is that helps you to determine what you ought to do. You cannot derive an ought from an is. The world out there, the world known to science, it just is. Does any of that, any of the facts of the physical world, tell you what you ought to do? How you ought to be? And yet you still feel that burden. You still feel that responsibility and curiosity about what you ought to do, what you ought to be. And that's completely unexplainable from physics. Eddington says, Natural law in science means a rule which is never broken. Thus in the physical world, what a body does and what a body ought to do are equivalent. But we are all well aware there are anything but equivalent. If natural law determines the way in which configurations of atoms succeed one another, it will simultaneously determine the way in which thoughts succeed one another. However, the fundamental property of thought is that it may be correct or incorrect. 
machinery cannot be anything but correct. Right? So natural law that governs the natural world, gravity and space-time geometry and you know, attraction of, of atoms and, and spin and charge and all that stuff, it's like, a clock, it's like clockwork. It's like you can follow the chain of cause and effect from beginning to end forever. Everything happens because it couldn't happen any other way based upon the laws that it's following. And yet our thoughts, our mental world, isn't like that at all. We can be right or wrong. Thought is not determined like the physical laws seem to be determined. And he says this, Truth and untruth belong to the realm of significance and values. Unless we pay attention to significance as well as to the physical entities, we may miss the essential part of experience. So we often think about truth in terms of black and white scientific truth, right and wrong. But he says truth really belongs to the realm of significance and values. It belongs to this unseen realm, this non-physical realm. And if we dismiss that non-physical realm, if we dismiss significance and values, we really can't have truth. We can't know truth. We're missing something, something important, something fundamentally important. That brings me to the next section, which is called, Is Revelation Proof of God? And Eddington starts like this. He says, We want assurance that the soul, in reaching out to the unseen world, is not following an illusion? Right, it's a fair question. We can talk about the idea of non-physical reality, but we still want to know, are we fooling ourselves? And he goes on, he says, The question is commonly put, does God really exist? It is difficult to set aside this question without being suspected of quibbling. But I venture to put it aside, because it scarcely reaches deep enough into religious experience. He said 99 people out of 100 have not seriously considered what they mean by the term exist, nor how a thing qualifies to be labeled real. Right? So when we ask, does God exist? We really haven't even considered what exist means. And then he said, even so, whether God exists or not as a, as a concept scarcely touches the, the reality of religious experience. Anybody who's had a legitimate, authentic religious experience would never quabble over the idea that God exists or doesn't exist, whether we can prove it or not, because you've experienced it. He says, We could read philosophical arguments designed to prove the non-existence of each other, and perhaps even be convinced by them and then laugh over so odd a conclusion. I think that it is something of the same kind we should seek in our relationship with God. The most flawless proof of the existence of God is no substitute for it. All right, so here's the, here's the story, here's the visual. We're sitting around waxing philosophical with each other, a group of friends trying to come up with an argument, a philosophical argument that's sound, that would convince us that we don't exist. And we might be clever enough to do such a thing. And then we would laugh. I'll have a good chuckle about how we can use reason to come up with something 
that's consistent and cogent and wrong. We would laugh about the idea because we know that the reality of our own existence is. So we can't prove it away. And he said, that is what we should seek with God. A reality so obvious that we can't prove it away. And he says, the most flawless proof of the existence of God is no substitute for it. You can't teach it. You can't convince yourself of it. That you should seek in a religious experience. Because once you've experienced it, all else is as nothing. God is is unquestionably real, just as the experience you've had is unquestionably real. He says the crucial point for us is not a conviction of the existence of a supreme God, but a conviction of the revelation of a supreme God. The revelation implied in the indwelling of the divine spirit in the mind of man. So what does he mean here by revelation? He has kind of an interesting definition. He's not talking about, you know, the heavens opening up and and an angel coming down and speaking to you or something like that. He said the revelation is implied in the indwelling of the divine spirit in the mind of man. So what does that mean? What comes to my mind is that, that quote from Genesis that we talked about last couple times, where God breathes himself into the form of Adam. So the spirit of God goes into Adam and becomes his soul. The Hindus would say that Brahman became Atman, God became man. So the revelation is understanding that the thing by which you live, the thing by which you experience your consciousness, your your sentience in your life, that thing is the divine spirit in you. So the revelation is the experience of God in and as our own consciousness. It's hard to argue with that when you when you put it that way. It's hard to argue about the existence of God when you put it that way. He says, returning to human consciousness, the one center where more might become known, we find other revelations, true or false, than those conditioned by the world of symbols. Are not these two significant? We can only answer according to our conviction. For here, reasoning fails us altogether. So there are other things that we can know within our mind that don't exist in the physical world. Are those not significant? We can think about feelings of love and attachment, longing, seeking, yearning, um, you know, our interests, our passions, uh, all of those things. They don't exist in the physical world. Does that mean they're not significant? Our reasoning fails us here, but I think we would agree those things are the most significant. Existence is for those things, not for the physical world. He says, We can and must believe that we have an inner sense of values which guides us as to what is to be heeded. Otherwise, we cannot start on our survey even of the physical world. Consciousness alone can determine the validity of its convictions. So what's he saying here? It's like we have an inner sense of values which guides us to what is to be heeded. What does that mean? That means that we we intuitively, not by trying, we just do, place values on things, events, situations, people, objects, and that guides us in the world. 
It's like that spirit of Mercurius that Jordan Peterson always talks about, the golden snitch from Harry Potter, the thing that glitz and glimmers in the sun that that draws our consciousness, that draws our attention, that that pulls us into the world. What are our interests and where where do they come from? That we need that before we ever come to scientific knowledge because otherwise we would never care to explore the world that way. It has to catch us as interesting. It has to bring us in. And where, do the, where does that desire come from? It's not physical. Desire is not physical. And therein lies the problem. He says, The study of the visible universe may be said to start with an act of faith, a belief that what our eyes have to show us is significant. The mystic recognizes another faculty of consciousness and accepts as significant a world outside space and time that it reveals. And that brings us to our next section, which I'm going to call scientific analysis. And this one's short. It goes like this. If in a community of the blind, one man suddenly received the gift of sight, he would have much to tell which would not be at all scientific. We can imagine him attempting to convey the significance of so-called physical realities. To the man who has received the revelation of sight... The significant fact is the amazing transformation into a world of color. I need not stress the bearing of this when the eye of the soul was opened to the unseen world. This reminds me of David Chalmers' um, thought experiment about Mary. If you guys remember me talking about that, uh, Mary's a scientist that knows everything there is to know about optics and light and sight and all of this, but she's blind. She knows all of the science and understands how everything works as, as good as anybody can, can possibly. And then one day she becomes um, sighted. One day she, she gains sight and she sees the color red for the first time. And David Chalmers asked the question, does she now know something about sight that she didn't know before? And of course the answer is yes, because she's had an experience of color. She knows everything about wavelengths and light absorption and, and uh, you know, all of that, you know, how, how the optics work and everything, but she's never seen it. And color is something that he calls qualia. It's something that is not governed by physical laws. It exists outside of the physical. So Mary is, of course, gaining something new from that. But the other analogy here is pretty straightforward. It's something like Plato's cave, where a blind person living among blind people has an understanding of the world that doesn't include this this dimension of sight. Somebody who, you know, the one person who's who's gifted with this uh, revelation of sight now sees the world differently than everybody else, but can't convince anybody of the truth of it. And the and the analogy is to somebody who's who has a religious experience. Someone who's had a religious experience is like the blind man who's gained his sight and sees the world differently than everybody else. He may be the only one that's right. And that brings me to my conclusion. So what is Eddington trying to do here? He's not exactly trying to reconcile science and religion. What he's doing is acknowledging the limits of science as an absolute source of knowledge and its particular insufficiency in explaining the aspect of our experience 
that are not physical. He's chiefly pushing back against the materialist narrative that has come to dominate our thinking and has resulted in the devaluing and even ignoring of those aspects of reality which prove most significant to us. Things like meaning, value, love, desire, feeling, and emotion of all varieties. These cannot be explained by physical science. They do not supervene on the physical, as David Chalmers would say. And so we cannot rest satisfied in the materialist narrative. There is more science to be done, more understanding to be had. He posits, therefore, an unseen world or a non-physical aspect to reality, which is the realm of our own consciousness, our mind or spirit, and even the idea of God. He does not laugh these off or dismiss them as illusion, as has become the standard today. How could he? This leaves the work of science only half done. Instead, he challenges materialist certainty using their own weapon, science, against them. He points out that matter has been proven not to be something concrete, alluding to quantum mechanics, and that physical science merely reduces reality to symbols, abstractions that follow defined mathematical equations, while failing spectacularly to offer any insight as to what those symbols actually represent. He points out that reality and the meaning behind these symbols is lost in shadow. It is left blatantly and intentionally unpursued. Science tells us what matter does, but not what it is, and pretends, as it were, that the non-physical is not real at all. This leads deeply into the question of what real means. If what is real need not be something concrete, then what does it mean to be real? Can something be non-physical and yet still be real? Eddington points to space and time as non-physical realities, to say nothing of the existence of sentience, of meaning, qualia, and experience itself. Surely, he contends, if something is part of our experience, it is real even if there are no physical correlates to its existence. The ultimate question arises, is God real? And his answer is the same. If God is a part of experience, it must be said to be real, as real as any physical object. Now you might say, ha, you've doomed your own argument then, for I've never experienced God in the slightest, and neither has anyone else. So there is no God even if non-physical reality cannot be dismissed outright. To this I imagine Eddington smiling slyly. See, he agrees, at least in part, God is not a physical reality, or at least not only a physical reality. God, like qualia, space and time, belongs to the unseen world. But something which is not seen can still be experienced. And that thing which is most unobserved, our very own sentience, is to Eddington the revelation of God. We are the spirit, proof of the unseen, looking out through and into the material world. 
our animating force in our mind, which makes sense of it, is the reality of the unseen. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>